0: Thank you all for coming today. So it's my pleasure to welcome Medea Benjamin here to Lone Star College, Kingwood. Uh, Medea is the co-founder of Code Pink, a woman-led peace and justice organization. She has received the Martin Luther King Jr. Peace Prize from the Fellowship of Reconciliation, the Marjorie Kellogg National Peacemaker Award, the US Peace Prize in the Gandhi Peace Award, and she spent more than 30 years working for peace and social justice. So with that, Ms. Benjamin. It's great to be here, and I don't know how many of you have followed any of this uh, about Ukraine or where you get your information from, because of course a lot of what we think depends on what source of news we're looking at. Uh, but let me just ask a couple of questions to get a sense of uh, where you're at. Um, if you could uh, raise your hand if you follow the news about a missile going into Poland. Oh, a lot of you did. Okay. Um, well, let me start there because... It's an example of what could happen in this conflict. So far, it's almost, it'll be a year, uh, come February 24th, uh, that the Russians invaded. And it's been a brutal conflict with many people killed. We have no idea the numbers. You know, when these wars happen, uh, there are so many different, Uh, statistics that are put out about how many people are killed, oftentimes the parties don't, they want to lower the numbers uh, to make it look like that. Not that many people are being killed, Uh, and uh, so we don't know. But we know that there are over 10,000 people on each side that have been killed. Some places they talk about 100,000. Uh, And we know that for the Ukrainian people this has been brutal, that millions of them have had to flee the country, that uh, a new tactic that the Russians are using is destroying the infrastructure of Ukraine so that people are left with the winter coming on without electricity, without heating, without water in some cases. Uh, and then on the side of the, it's not just the innocent people in Ukraine, it's also all of the soldiers that are being killed. And uh, when I was young, there was a drought around Vietnam, and so people your age, particularly the, the, the men in this room, um, would be sent off to fight. Uh, in the case of Ukraine, it's mandatory for, uh, people over 18 meant to uh, fight and in the case of Russia there's now new conscripts that have been called up uh, and so these are 18, 19, 20 year olds who are doing the, the fighting and the dying uh, and I doubt that many of them want to be uh, involved in this conflict and of course there's the parents who've lost their children who can't find out what happened to them especially in Russia um, so a lot of suffering going on. Um, the conflict, uh, I tend to look at it on two levels. One is there was a civil war in Ukraine that has been going on that hopefully will get this going and you can learn more about what that was all about, uh, where Russia came in and is the aggressor, uh, and that is a um, the war happening in an area called the Dunbas. Um on top of that is a geopolitical conflict where the U.S. has been uh, fighting uh, trying to uh, expand its um, hegemony and uh, seeing the Cold War that happened uh, with Russia as really should we get it going now? Yeah. We're well, just working on the volume. <laughs> oh, we're working on the volume. Yes, ma'am. Uh, a geopolitical war that's going on in the region as well that has complicated this, and uh, it's important to understand that aspect of it as well because that's where we in the U.S. come in. Um, many people say that this is a conflict that the Ukrainians can win, meaning kicking out the Russians, recovering all of the land that was taken, uh, including all of the Donbass and Crimea. Uh, but people in the U.S. military who understand more of what's going on on the ground, uh, especially Biden's chief advisor, who is the chair of the Joint Chiefs of Staff, have said that this is a war that cannot be won, won on the ground, that Russia is not going to give up the territory that it has, uh, and that um, this really is a war that could either expand into a nuclear war, or as we saw with that missile in Poland, expand to more countries getting involved in this war, and it could really uh, become a uh, another world war, uh, or it has to be... Um, it has to be negotiated at the negotiating table. And so that's really the crux of it, is how long will this war continue to go on with so much suffering, so many people dying? Uh, Or will there be much more of a push both on the Russian side, the Ukrainian side, and the European and the US side to actually move towards negotiations? So where is that push right now? When it comes to Russia, There is a lot of censorship in the press, so many people don't know what's going on. Uh, But despite that, there is more and more opposition within Russia to this war. When Russia called up 300,000 new reservists, uh, many of the young people, hundreds of uh, thousands, uh, left the country because they didn't want to fight. Uh, There is... um, a lot of nationalism inside Ukraine where they want to get uh, every inch of their territory back, uh, but polls that have been taken in Ukraine show a shift in that as well. In fact the people that are in the areas that are most affected by the war are the ones that are most anxious to see negotiations start. And then it comes, then is the issue of Europe because Europe Um, really is suffering a lot because of this war. The sanctions that have been put on energy coming from Russia, and much of Europe was dependent on that Russian energy, uh, are now facing a situation where they're having to scramble to get that energy replaced from other sources. And what it means is that the price of energy has gone way up And one of the areas, places where they're getting that energy is from the United States, and specifically right here in Texas, where there are uh, the gas and oil companies recognizing that this is an opportunity for them to fill in the gaps created by the sanctions on Russian energy. But what Europeans are saying is that in the U.S. companies, are price gouging, are profiteering from the war, and are selling the energy at four times the price that people in this country are paying for it. And so there's a lot of complaining in Europe about how this war is affecting their standard of living, it's affecting the ability of the manufacturing sector to uh, keep going because of the high energy prices that they're all paying. So in Europe, you're seeing people coming out into the streets and protests in many different countries. They're protesting against inflation, they're protesting against the higher uh, costs of uh, groceries, of energy, but they're also protesting against the war in Ukraine connecting these issues. Meanwhile, here at home, uh, you know, there's not a long attention span in this country to things like foreign policy. And so while we heard a lot about the issues of Ukraine in the early days, uh, there's not as much uh, in the U.S. press. Uh, Nevertheless, the press tends to take a position saying that this war can be won on the battlefield. And so there are a lot of people in this country that think that it's a good thing to keep sending more and more weapons uh, into Ukraine to help them win. Now, there are polls that have been asking a question that I want to ask you, which is, are we doing, oh, first let me say, uh, the amount of money that's being spent on Ukraine, uh, if this next amount of 37 billion is approved, which it looks like it certainly will, will be over $100 billion that the US taxpayers have spent in less than one year. So the question that's asked in the polls is, are, is the US doing too little to help Ukraine? Is it doing just enough to help Ukraine? Or is it doing too much to help Ukraine? And so let me just put that out here to see where you all feel on this issue. Um, if you could raise your hand for one of those three things. So is the US too, doing too little to help Ukraine? Is the U.S. doing the right, just the right amount to help Ukraine? Is the U.S. doing too much to help Ukraine? So it looks like people are either don't know or are more between the doing just the right amount and doing too much. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, I got a question. What about if you, uh, I mean... Doing something in the part of, of not having the war. I mean, so negotiating, pushing for yeah. negotiations. Yes. Yeah. So, Rachel, I'm going to ask you. Uh, you have two choices here. If you think uh, it's possible to negotiate with Russia, and if you think that's not possible. So, do you think it's possible to negotiate with Russia? Do you think it's not possible? So that's interesting. we got more people on the possible than the uh, not possible, but let me give you my opinion on that. Um, right after the war started, there was a call to end this quickly, and the uh, academic studies show that the best time to end a war is right after it began, that in the first month, it's more possible than as the war drags on, it becomes harder and harder. And so, in the first month, there was a big push by the United Nations Secretary General, and the mediator was the uh, the head of state of Turkey. And they started negotiations, and it seemed like they were actually getting somewhere. There was a fifteen point plan that they were looking at, and one of the key things is was uh, Ukraine going to give up its desire to be part of NATO. And at that point, uh, Zelensky had said that he recognized that it was going to be uh, impossible for Ukraine to be a NATO country, that it would have to be neutral. And the negotiations were pushing forward on a number of different issues. Well then, and we explain this in the video, It seems like the head of the U.S.K. at that time, Boris Johnson, and the U.S. Secretary of Defense, Lloyd Austin, got involved and pushed Ukraine not to negotiate and said, you can really win this. You don't have to compromise. And that has been a position since then. When I speak to groups, I find a lot of people like you who said, well, Russia is the aggressor. They want to take over all of Ukraine. You can't negotiate with them, and specifically, you can't negotiate with Putin. That he is a um, he's a dictator. He wants to rebuild the the old uh, Soviet empire, and that um, he's totally untrustworthy. And I want to point out. One, those negotiations were going forward and were making progress, and both sides had said they were making progress before they were scuttled. Two, there are a lot of talks that are going on between Russia and Ukraine on specific issues. For example, the um, world did not really know before this war began how dependent so many countries were on rain, coming from Russia and Ukraine. That 40% of the grain exported, particularly wheat, but other grains as well, um, were critical to feed people in Africa and the Middle East. And so when the war started, there was an increased shortage of food um, uh, and a great pressure to try to make an agreement to get that grain out. agreement was reached to create a land corridor inside Ukraine uh, to get that wheat out and create uh, the corridor in the uh, sea to get that out as well. Uh, And that has been successful. And it means that over 10 million tons of grain has gotten out of Ukraine to places that really desperately need that. Another example is uh, and let's see if you uh, and how many of you heard about the fighting that was going on very close to the largest nuclear plant in Ukraine called Zaporizhia. Did you hear about that? So at that time there was a ter- terrible sense of doom that this plant was going to explode and that radiation would then not only go through to Ukraine but to uh, Russia and, and, and other countries in Europe as well. And so there was a lot of pressure uh, to put on the Russians um, to make a deal with Ukraine and the atomic, International Atomic Energy Association to get representatives of that association into the plant uh, to try to stop the uh, fighting that was going on right around the plant And those negotiations have gone forward. There have been representatives of the international uh, agency inside the plant. uh, And it is still not a safe situation, but it's much better than it was. Another example of talks that have been going on are prisoner swaps. And we don't hear about them much in the media, but there have been probably almost 20 prisoner swaps. Uh, and some of them, including large numbers of prisoners, like hundreds of them. And so I think it's important to just think about how difficult it is to arrange even one prisoner swap in a war situation where there's no trust between the different sides, uh, how logistically difficult it is. Uh, and this has been done almost twice a month since the uh, since the fighting began. Um, My point is to say uh, that it is possible to talk, and uh, the talks have to extend beyond those specific issues to how we're going to solve the problem. Then the issue is not just talks between Ukraine and um, the Russians, but also between the U.S. slash NATO and Russia, and what kind of talks could there be around that? Well, groups like mine that want to see an end to this war have been pushing for uh, the Biden administration and Biden himself to talk to Putin. We've also been calling for our Secretary of State, Anthony Blinken, to talk directly to his counterpart in Russia because that's what diplomats are supposed to do. You're supposed to talk to your adversaries. But those talks have not started. What we do see is that there have been talks between other U.S. officials and their counterparts in Russia, and that is the Secretary of Defense, the head of the CIA, and the National Security Council. Now, what we've been told is that they are not talking about how to end this war. They've been talking about how to stop this war from expanding, how to stop it from uh, a, a nuclear war, how to stop it from... Uh, a situation where the NATO countries um, are directly involved, like what happened when that missile went into Poland, which is a NATO country. Um, so that's where the talks are. But it doesn't, it doesn't stop the ongoing fighting that's happening. So the U.S. position has been Ukraine has to decide for themselves if and when they want negotiations that we are not going to pressure them but I think we should dig into that a little further because the U.S. is the one uh, that's providing most of the weapons for this war, the U.S. is the one that's providing over a billion dollars every month just to keep the Ukrainian uh, government going. Uh, because their economy has crashed, and so the U.S. has a lot of um, uh, has a a, a a lot to say about how this conflict moves forward. And so, in my opinion, I feel that um, if the U.S. said we do not have a blank check to keep this war going endlessly. Um, that would be a signal to the Ukrainians that they have to start negotiations. So in this country, in the U.S., there is a Democrat in the White House. um, The administration has so far not said that it wants to negotiate an end to this war. Uh, And in Congress, you have both the Democrats and the Republicans, for, for the most part, who have been very supportive of the war and willing to allocate lots of U.S. money for that war, but there have been voices on the left and the right that have started to question this. On the right in the Republican Party, there were 57 members of the Republican Party that uh, voted against uh, the, the big, big, the big tranche of money, 40 billion dollars. Um, that was going to Ukraine, and uh, some of them had reasons that I don't know if you in this room would agree with. Uh, Some of them said we should put that money into securing our border with Mexico. Uh, Some of them said we should put that money into uh, our real adversary, which is China. But some of them said we have unmet needs at home, and we should be taking care of those unmet needs and not giving all this money to a war in Europe that the Europeans should figure out how to solve. On the Democratic side, uh, there were 30 members of uh, the progressives in Congress, including one uh, from Texas, Sheila Jackson Lee, who signed a letter to Biden saying that Uh, In addition to the support that they were giving Ukraine, um, it looked like this is a time to really push for negotiations. Well, when they put out that letter, there was a lot of backlash from within the Democratic Party leadership saying, how can you second guess what the administration is doing? We have to all be on the same page as Democrats uh, and let the Biden administration be the one to take the lead. And so within 24 hours of putting out that letter, they backtracked, they, they, they walked it back. Uh, and now I think um, there, is, there are very few members on the Democratic side who have been willing to uh, put their voice out there to call for negotiations. There is one, for example, from California, his name is Ro Khanna. He had signed that letter and he stood by the letter And he actually got on CNN and made a case for it, saying that I think it's totally rational um, to be saying that uh, we need to push for negotiations. And he got a lot of support for keeping that um, position, whereas other Democrats felt with the pressure that they wanted to retract um, their signatures on that letter. There are other people who are calling for negotiations. Donald Trump, for example, when he uh, goes out in his rallies or in his social media or when he gave his speech uh, that he was going to run for president again, he always brings up the war in Ukraine. And he said, this could lead to a third world war. It could annihilate life on this planet. We have to negotiate. And were I in power, I would be talking to Putin and we would find a way to end this war. Now, some people might snicker and say, well, you know, he's, he talks a good line. He wouldn't do that. You can't trust him, whatever. So, um, but people who hear him talk like that, there is a lot of support for that. Um, and it, it, um, he says, when you get the, the Biden in power, you get war. Uh, if I came in, you would get an end to that. Uh, and I bring this forward because this is a political issue and there are people now who are um, staking out their position and trying to get public support for it. Uh, The same you see on the cable news programs. Uh, The majority of them have not given voice even to people like myself uh, calling for negotiations. They have had a steady stream of people who have uh, been saying more or less the same thing. The Ukrainians could win if we give them more high-powered weapons, uh, if we just keep uh, the increasing the funding that's going to them. But there are other people, for example, Tucker Carlson on Fox News, that have a very different position and are calling for negotiations. So it's a strange political configuration right now when you have uh, people who are on the uh, right of the Republican Party fighting with their own more uh, centrist members of the Republican Party, and you have people on the left of the Democratic Party who have been cowed into not being uh, vocal about their their call for negotiations. And then you have us, the American people. And uh, here's where I feel it's important to talk about Um, people getting involved because uh, I think that if we can build up more of a call for uh, an end to this war from the base whether it's Republican, Democrat, Independent, whatever it is uh, in this country we will be getting more support from our elected officials and we could have a chance to help end this war sooner than later. And so that's why I wrote the book, did the video that it looks like you'll not see, (laughs) and have been traveling around the country trying to get people involved. And um, I think what we'll do now is I'll open it up for a discussion to see what you agree with with what I said, what you don't agree with, what other issues have come up for you around this war that you'd like us to talk about, uh, and uh, anything else that you would like to discuss? Yes, uh, during the Iraq war, there were, there were a lot of different peace groups out there and so where, where are they now and where are they standing on this issue? Well, that's a great question. During the Iraq war, we were able to get large numbers of people out into the streets. Hundreds of thousands of people came out to the streets several times. In fact, there was one uh, there was one uh, mobilization in New York City that was called the largest mobilization uh, in U.S. history against a war. And uh, what happened to there is that when um, that was under George Bush, when Obama came in, a lot of those people thought Obama was going to end the wars. Uh, And so they kind of fizzled out. But the other thing that happened is that people became disillusioned. Because when you come out on the streets time and time again to stop a war and the government doesn't listen to you, and in the case of Iraq, went ahead and invaded anyway, people start questioning, uh, is this a tactic that makes sense? Can uh, Can we stop the military? 1960s. Uh, can you really stop them when they made their determination that they're going to uh, launch a war? So I think. And another reason is that people got involved in other issues where they thought they could have more of an impact. Um, they saw the existential crisis of the climate facing this planet and got more involved in that. And especially young people uh, who care about the future of life on this planet. And thought that they could make a difference uh, on many different levels. You know, getting their their university to have electric cars, or you know, all kinds of things you could do in your city, um, rather than protesting wars thousands of miles away um, when the government usually doesn't listen. So it's been very difficult to build up an anti-war movement. And in fact, uh, I would say the most solid people in the anti-war movement are older people like myself that come from the Vietnam War days. And young people now have no history of or no connection to Vietnam War. And even the Iraq War is a distant memory for people who are in uh, college at this point. Um, and I think for many people, because they grew up when the U.S. was not war, in Iraq and Afghanistan, it's sort of like the norm. Like there's this... Um, uh, low grade uh, fever cancer something going on in the background there and uh, it doesn't people don't see how it affects them but it's important to talk about how it does affect uh, everybody and I would say especially young people certainly there is the possibility of a nuclear war and I find that young people don't, it doesn't really um, compute that much with young people because they don't have a history of, uh, of the kind of drills we used to have in, in school where you have to hide under your desk and, uh, the, uh, and any memory of the U.S. actually using a nuclear weapon uh, in World War II. Um, but young people do care about the environment. And in this, I think it's important to look at the ways that this war is affecting the environment War itself is a tremendous destructive force for the environment and the, uh, uh, everything from the groundwater to the forests in Ukraine are being destroyed by this war. Um, the production of weapons is so energy intensive, and we are now trying to replenish the weapons that the Pentagon has already sent to Ukraine, and, and so um, massive use of energy for weapons production The Pentagon itself is the number one uh, uh, emitter of uh, of carbon uh, in the atmosphere, and at this time when they're on uh, uh, hyper-production, it's even more so. Uh, And then you have the issue, for example, I don't know if you heard about the blowing up of the Nord Stream pipeline. Uh, Let's see a show of hands if you heard about that. Uh, so, some of you have. Um, that was a pipeline that was bringing energy, uh, gas from Russia into uh, Germany and distributed throughout Europe. Uh, and that was blown up. Um, if anybody wants to talk about who might have done that, I'm happy to talk about it. But the fact is that it released the largest emissions of methane gas that we have ever recorded. And then, in addition to that, There is the issue that I talked about earlier on where uh, there is more incentive now to produce more gas and more oil and even coal uh, to replace the energy that was coming from Russia. Uh, We even see that in Europe there were nuclear plants that were supposed to be decommissioned uh, that are still online, and gas-powered and coal power plants, that were already shut down, that are now being fired up again. Uh, And then related to the environment, we also have to talk about the issue of where we spend our money on dealing with the issues of the climate. There was just the gathering of uh, COP27, the gathering around the climate that happened in Egypt, and the poorer countries said that the richer countries that produce the crisis uh, that, that the poorer countries are the suffering from, they were supposed to have put $100 billion a year into a fund uh, to help the poorer countries, and they never, ever fulfilled that promise. But yet, when it came to Ukraine, there was $100 billion spent in less than a year, and these countries are saying, "No, where are your priorities? Why are you so quick to put money into wars um, but we won't put the money that's needed into dealing with the crisis of the climate. So I think in all of those ways are ways that affect um, and, and should be reasons uh, that all of us are concerned about how long this work goes on. So I think okay. the, the war in their process is different. Uh, and this for two reasons. one Potentially, you could make the argument that as, as we went into what we call the preventive war, you could have considered us aggressor, right? So you could right? yeah. Potentially, you could have said mm-hmm. the U.S. was a major player in the restoration conflict, and we left things with the U.S. Here, we're talking about Russia attacking a sovereign democracy, and so it's a very different approach here. But, I, but I'm really wondering, and I'm, excuse I haven't read your point. I will. I will admit to that. I'm wondering what concessions you would be comfortable with on behalf of Ukraine, right? Because when you come to a negotiating, you say, "Oh, both sides have to have to give," right? So, what what outcome would you be comfortable with? And sort of what concessions on both sides, but especially what concessions you would consider okay from, from Ukraine. Well, this uh, kind of leads into, do we want to watch the video because we talk about this more in the video? Let's talk about the heartbreaking war in Ukraine and what we could do to try to end it. Every day the war rages on, civilians and soldiers are being killed. Millions of Ukrainians have been forced to flee and seek asylum in foreign lands, schools, hospitals, apartment buildings, and infrastructure have been reduced to rubble. We wrote this book to try to help people make sense of a war that should never have happened, a war that has raged on for months and might well rage on for years, a war that could lead to a nuclear confrontation, a war that must be stopped. We know that people have very different opinions about this conflict, and we hope that our book and this talk will foster respectful dialogue. We have not tried to justify or excuse Russia's invasion of Ukraine because we do not think it is justifiable or excusable. We hope we can help you understand the context, the background, and the actions of all the parties that led to this crisis. As U.S. citizens, We have very little hope of influencing the Russian government, but we should be able to influence our own government, which is why it's so important to look at the role the United States has played in fomenting the conflict. Let's look at two elements of U.S. involvement that we highlight in our book, NATO expansion and the events of 2014. Western leaders call NATO a defensive military alliance. But NATO was formed to defend Western Europe from invasion by the Soviet Union. That mission was accomplished when the Soviet Union disintegrated in 1991. NATO should have been dissolved at the end of the Cold War, along with the Warsaw Pact, which was NATO's counterpart in the Eastern Bloc. Instead, NATO reinvented itself to justify its continued existence. It expanded all the way to Russia's borders, despite many promises that it would not do so, and ignoring warnings from experienced U.S. and Western diplomats that this would lead to a predictable yet entirely avoidable crisis with Russia, has, as in fact it has. You can see the map showing the various waves of expansion, in which NATO incorporated former Soviet republics and Russia's European neighbors. In 2018, the antagonism reached new heights when NATO, under U.S. pressure, publicly promised membership to the former Soviet republics of Ukraine and Georgia. While no definite date was set, NATO began supplying increased levels of military aid and training to Ukraine, including Ukraine, in military exercises. So Russia certainly had legitimate concerns about Ukraine's involvement in an ever-expanding military alliance that was encircling Russia with powerful military forces and had already unleashed aggressive wars and occupations in Kosovo in 1999, Afghanistan in 2001, in Libya and Syria in 2011. The other event that served to set the stage for the Russian invasion in 2022 was the coup in Ukraine in 2014. The 2014 upheavals began with massive peaceful protests against the corrupt pro-Russian president, Viktor Yanukovych. Unfortunately, though, these protests turned violent and were co-opted by neo-Nazi groups that refused to go along with an internationally negotiated plan for a political transition, and instead they spearheaded a coup. The extent of U.S. support and involvement in this coup is still shrouded in secrecy, as are previous U.S.-backed coups in Iran, Chile, and many other countries but a leaked audio tape of Assistant Secretary of State Victoria Nuland and U.S. Ambassador Jeffrey Pyatt exposed their roles as coup managers as they handpicked what positions each of their Ukrainian collaborators would assume in the post-coup government. Although the original peaceful protests in Ukraine were about wanting to join the European Union, Newland dismissed the European Union's more popular choice for Prime Minister, Vitali Klitschko, with her infamous F the EU remark. According to a Gallup poll conducted in April 2014, nearly 50% of Ukrainians rejected the legitimacy of the post-coup government. This led to rebellions in parts of Ukraine that were ethnically and culturally close to Russia. In Crimea, a peninsula on the Black Sea with a mostly Russian-speaking population that was part of Russia from 1783 until 1954, as well as in the eastern provinces of Luhansk and Donetsk. In Odessa, 42 anti-coup protesters were burned to death by a mob on May 2, 2014. The new government in Ukraine was rejected by the parliament in Crimea, and a referendum to rejoin Russia passed overwhelmingly and was accepted by Russia but not recognized by other countries. The provinces of Luhansk and Donetsk also passed referendums declaring themselves independent from Ukraine, leading to a civil war that killed an estimated 14,000 people. Many Ukrainian military units based in this region defected to the self-declared People's Republics, or refused to fight their own people. So the Ukrainian government formed new National Guard units to fight the separatists. These included units like the Asov Battalion, recruited from the same neo-Nazi groups that took up arms to spearhead the coup in Kiev in February 2014. The worst fighting of the Civil War ended in February 2015 with the signing of the Minsk II Accord. This was drafted by France, Germany, and Russia, and agreed to by Ukraine and the self-declared republics. It set up a ceasefire in a buffer zone between the warring parties and was monitored by 1,300 monitors and staff from the OSCE, which is the Organization for Security and Cooperation in Europe. While the ceasefire largely held from 2015 to 2022, the Ukrainian government failed to implement the political aspects of the Minsk II agreement. It had agreed to grant Donetsk in Luhansk a new autonomous status, but each time the Ukrainian government tried to move forward on this, extreme right-wing forces re-exerted their power and insisted that Ukraine must instead keep fighting to recover its lost territories. NATO and the U.S. also bear responsibility for the failure of Minsk II. Despite officially claiming to support the agreement, NATO and the U.S., under both Trump and Biden, kept building up Ukraine's military, encouraging the Ukrainian government to believe it could eventually recover Donbas and Crimea by force, and that the U.S. and NATO would support that. As tensions were reaching a boiling point in December 2021, Russia took the initiative of drafting two mutual security treaties, one between Russia and the United States and the other between Russia and NATO. These were not take-it-or-leave-it demands, but drafts for negotiation. Unfortunately, the United States and NATO summarily dismissed Russia's proposals. By building up Ukraine's military, promising Ukraine-NATO membership, and dismissing negotiations, the U.S. and its allies turned Ukraine into a dangerous weapon in their revived Cold War against Russia. Then, in the days leading up to February's Russia invasion, the OSCE ceasefire monitors documented thousands of explosions around the ceasefire line in Donbas mostly on the Donetsk and Luhansk side, indicating a major escalation of artillery fire by Ukrainian government forces. So even in the immediate causes of the war, It is deceptive to describe the invasion as unprovoked, as Biden and U.S. officials routinely do. By early 2022, Russia had amassed large military forces near Belarus's border and its own borders with Ukraine, all the while denying that it had plans to invade. It also formally recognized Donetsk and Luhansk People's Republics as independent countries. On February 24th, Russia invaded. The invasion was illegal on many counts. It was not an act of self-defense, and it certainly was not authorized by the United Nations. Under international law, including the Kellogg-Briand Pact and the UN Charter, the invasion was an illegal crime of aggression. Russia did not just move its invading forces into Donbass to support the breakaway republics, but it launched offensive towards the capital, Kyiv, and the second-largest city, Kharkiv, in the northeast, and into the southern part of Ukraine from Crimea. Western analysts generally agree that Russia must have hoped to take quickly Kyiv and install a friendly government, but it encountered strong resistance from Ukrainian forces and was forced to withdraw from the north. Ukraine's Western neighbors responded to the invasion by granting asylum to millions of refugees while the U.S. and other NATO countries poured billions of dollars' worth of weapons into Ukraine, stepped up their training of Ukrainian military, and provided it with intelligence to accurately attack important Russian targets. There has been little or no accountability for the weapons flooding into Ukraine. There are reports that as little as 30% of them may be reaching the front lines because they are either destroyed by Russian missiles or siphoned off into the black market, where they could end up in the hands of the Islamic State, neo-Nazis, or other dangerous groups around the world. This was precisely why the U.S. Congress prohibited the transfer of U.S. weapons to the Asov Regiment in 2018, as it became a magnet and a hub For international right-wing militant networks. Yet after the Russian invasion, all restraints were lifted and thousands of tons of powerful and advanced weapons have poured in over the Polish border. There was so little debate about this in the U.S. that when Congress passed an enormous $40 billion package for Ukraine, With most of the money to be spent on more and more lethal weapons for up to another decade, not a single Democrat voted against it. Not even Congresswoman Barbara Lee, who cast the lone, wise and prophetic vote against the disastrous war in Afghanistan in 2001. In our book, we explain the peace negotiations in Turkey in March that could have already ended this war and the largely unreported role of the U.S. and British governments in killing those talks. The talks during the first month of the war produced the contours of a 15-point peace plan for a ceasefire, a Russia withdrawal, and a future for Ukraine as an independent, peaceful and neutral country. On March twenty-seventh, President Zelensky told a national TV audience, Our goal is obvious peace and the restoration of normal life in our native state as soon as possible. Under the draft agreement, Ukraine would neither be a military ally of the United States and NATO nor of Russia with no foreign military bases or installations on its territory. Ukraine would get security guarantees from other countries. Russian speakers in Ukraine would be free to speak, read and study in Russian. And the future of Crimea and Donbass would be determined by an internationally accepted political process during a transition period of several years. But none of that came to pass. British Prime Minister Boris Johnson went to Kiev on April 9th and told Prime Minister Zelensky that the UK would not be party to any agreement between Ukraine and Russia, and that the Collective West, as he called it, saw a chance to press Russia and was determined to make the most of it. Turkish diplomats who had been mediating the ceasefire talks reported that U.S. Defense Secretary Austin delivered a similar message to Zelensky, and that these messages effectively killed their peace efforts. So early hopes for a negotiated peace were dashed, largely as a result of U.S. and British determination to weaken Russia even at the cost of rivers of Ukrainian blood, in an open-ended war that could last for years. The undermining of ceasefire talks was a tragic lost opportunity. Since the talks were abandoned, the slaughter and destruction has continued, with hundreds of Ukrainians killed every day. Russia has taken control of more territory, and despite the successful Ukrainian counteroffensive. Russia now occupies 20 percent of Ukraine. The sanctions against Russia have backfired, leading to soaring energy prices worldwide, while reduced grain exports have led to widespread hunger, particularly in the Global South. Europe is facing an energy and home heating crisis. Meanwhile, no sign has honestly or publicly explained what its goals are in this war, or why they can possibly justify the total destruction of Ukraine and even the greater danger of nuclear war. Even the old war hawk Henry Kissinger is warning that U.S. policy has blundered to the brink of a world war with no clear purpose or endgame in sight. He told the Wall Street Journal, we are at the edge of war with Russia and China on issues which we partly created, without any concept of how this is going to end or what it's supposed to lead to. And here at home, we are told we don't have the funds for a decent health care system or free college education or housing for the unhoused. We cannot allow our public funds to be squandered on yet another unwinnable war and an even more all-consuming military budget. Governments in the Global South are watching the impacts of this war plunge millions of their people into hunger and famine, while Europe's energy crisis is already sinking the continent into a recession. We in the U.S. have been relatively unscathed by this war compared to many people elsewhere, but we are already facing rising prices which will get worse as the war continues and the U.S. will not be exempt from the impacts of this looming global recession. With climate chaos jeopardizing the very future of life on this planet, this war is derailing our efforts to confront the climate crisis. Instead of a Green New Deal, we are now watching a mad scramble to produce more oil, gas, and coal, as energy companies reap record profits from their disaster capitalism. And while the climate heats up and governments and corporations shift their already inadequate climate plans into reverse, Russia and the U.S. are threatening us with yet another existential disaster, a nuclear apocalypse. We understand that some people may disagree with our analysis of this conflict but hopefully we can all agree that we must do whatever we can to bring this war to an end. And that's why Code Pink is part of a coalition called Peace in Ukraine. We pressure our members of Congress and the White House to call for negotiations. We call on the media to promote the voice of peacemakers. We distribute our messages via social media, and we educate the public, including getting our book into libraries and classrooms. And we encourage you to join us. We must act now to say, stop the bloodshed, stop the bombing, stop the madness. We must work together to demand a ceasefire and negotiations, not more war. Thank you. Thank you all for coming. Up, just to say if anybody is interested in learning more from the perspective that I'm coming from, um, is, you can look at my organization's website called pink.org, but also look at one called peaceinukraine.org. And one of the initiatives that we have right now during this holiday season is to call on the faith-based leaders around this country to step up and call for a Christmas truce like the one that happened in 1914 during the First World War. Uh, And we now have over 800 faith-based leaders, including the head of the Poor People's Campaign, Reverend Barber, Reverend Jesse Jackson, the heads of the National Council of Churches, uh, synagogues, uh, mosques, have, have all signed on to this call for a Christmas truce. Uh, You can see the the language that we're using there, Uh, and if you know people in the religious community who might want to sign on, uh, please look at it. Again, it's at peaceinukraine.org. Thank you. Yeah, and pick up a copy of the book, uh, War in Ukraine, Making Sense of a Senseless Conflict.